Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 Kings chapter 11, where I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13. Beginning to read then with verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Estoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Malak, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning the thing, this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept your covenant, my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. You have a little bit of an outline there uh, on the bottom of the bulletin page, if you have one of those. And we're going to look at how worldliness, uh, the influence of the world, the wisdom of the world, how worldliness uh, afflicted Solomon and drew him away. Now, the life of Solomon is... It's an amazing life. It's a great testimony to various themes. We've been talking about how God brought through Solomon's reign the, the highest point in, in Israel's history in terms of prosperity and outward blessings. So whereas even his father David had to fight so much to maintain his, his place in the world, uh, during Solomon's life and Solomon's reign, it was almost totally peaceful. We get hints here and there, especially in some of these chapters here, we get hints that there were that everybody wasn't totally at peace with Israel, but for for the most sake, for the most in the most case, the, it was that way. It was that there was a, a general peace 
that settled upon the Middle East. Now we see today the Middle East in it in terms of its historicity. There's war over there. There's antagonisms. There are hatreds and jealousies. By and large, that's been the history of the of the Middle East, of the Middle East area, especially uh, west of Babylon and Assyria, and um, a couple of these great kingdoms that began and prospered. But the Middle East, the Air Palestine, the the people of Israel, uh, their neighbors, the Philistines, um, all of these others like the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, um, all of these people. Um, there was a great deal of turmoil over the years. But during the reign of Solomon, and we've preached on this in these previous chapters, during the reign of Solomon there was a kind of idyllic peace that settled upon the nation and it was uh, identified with the rise of the Davidic kingdom and then his son Solomon, the son of David, Solomon. Uh, and this is, this is prefigured or typified in the previous chapter, chapter 10, where it tells the story of the Queen of Sheba. The Queen of Sheba who came, she had heard so many things about the wonders of uh, David's kingdom and she was one of the African kingdoms, and she came north to to uh, see for herself what all the to do was about. And uh, in verse in verse um, seven of chapter ten, she says, "However, however, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom." She's speaking to Solomon. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of what I heard. Happy are your men and happy are, the, are, are your servants. Who ever heard of happy servants? Aren't, aren't service servants by definition grasping and envious and unhappy? Aren't, aren't they rebellious against the, their, their master? Uh, Marxism defines servanthood as the, basically the essence of sin, the root of all evil. Because there's a class above and a class below. But what the Queen of Sheba saw, she came to this kingdom and she saw people living in harmony. It's almost unheard of in this world. There are many false gospels that say that there will, there can be harmony by killing a million people, like was done in the name of Marxism in the 20th century. But in the end, you just have bodies that are dead and families that have been desecrated and torn apart. The, the gospel doesn't measure up to the kingdom that it said it was going to bring. But in this day, under Solomon, there was genuine prosperity. And so the Queen of Sheba testifies to this. She comes, and the whole chapter is about her, and about how she was, uh, she was quite a, a potentate. She had a lot of power. Uh, she, she was able to come. She was able to afford the trip. You know, most of us can't afford luxurious vocations, but the Queen of Sheba was set. She was a, a queen in her own right of a kingdom which had prosperity. And she had, she had a virtue to herself that when she heard of, da of David and Solomon's blessings, she said, I want to see this for myself. So she came and she saw. So after, the, after chapter 10, talking about how this, this foreign or alien queen was totally persuaded of Solomon's blessings. After that, we come to our chapter 11. 
it says, but after all this blessing, after all this goodness, but King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of, uh, of Moab, the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. We, we learned that, that, that Solomon had over 700 wives. Now, obviously, that's more than two a day. These women, these women were largely ceremonial, not that, there, not that he didn't have conjugal rights with them or something like that, but uh, there's just too many. <laughs> more, more, more women than two, two a day. You can't even hardly say hello to them that many women at one time, but that was Solomon's situation. So despite all the blessings that God had poured out upon him, we see this, uh, this kind of catastrophe that happened to him, and we see from our text that it happened to him later in life, that, that for a long time he went on living fairly successfully, not only, prosper, not only being prosperous outwardly, but that coming from a prosperity of heart and soul. So uh, he was prosperous, he was, he was virtuous, he was blessed. He, we know he had a wisdom far above other men. Queen of, Queen of Sheba says that she, she, in talking to Solomon, she just couldn't believe how she hung on his every word because he was so wise. Any question she asked him, he could give her a, a well-balanced answer, one that, that looked at the, whole, the landscape of the whole world and all the experience of men, and then also her specific problem and issue. So she was overwhelmed with Solomon's wisdom. And he went on like this for many, many years. Many of us dream. We say, oh God, if you would but make me prosperous. If you would but give me the things that my heart yearns for. Take away the tension of my life. Give me a boss that didn't harangue me. Help me with my fellow workers. Help, help the, uh, the aspirations of my life to become more concrete and more fulfilled. If that would happen, O oh Lord, then I would follow you more closely. Then you would see what a good person I could be if you blessed me first and gave me the ability to follow you. Well, we have the exact opposite here with Solomon. Solomon was blessed in almost every way. Now, not to, not to spoil the rest of the story, but after Solomon fell here into this, uh, this sin of his women problem, after that, and after, after uh, indulging himself in all of the, the best things that this world has to offer, then the Lord brought him to repentance. So the end of Solomon's life was very, very exciting, both in terms of debauchery and in terms of reawakening. And out of that reawakening, we see that Solomon writes uh, the Song of Solomon about his true love of God. It's one of the greatest, it's, it's a human love story, but it's also metaphorical of love for God. And then also the book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, I have tasted and seen everything that this world has to offer. And in the end, I found out that it was all a vanity. It did not make me happy. It only added to my agony. So the life of Solomon is a tremendous, it can be a, me, a tremendous mechanism of waking up the human being. It, it goes against everything that we believe in terms of the, uh, the, um, the powers of our own souls and the, the energy of our own virtue. 
Because we say, oh God, if we, if we could do this, if, we, if you give me that, or give me a new car, then I'll be happy. Give me a wife that doesn't nag, nag me all the time. Then I'd be happy. I, I could, I'd be the kind of servant you want me to be. God says, no, you'd be the servant I want you to be, and then you'll see how I deal with you later on. I need to be your sovereign first before all of these things because he holds up the example of Solomon where Solomon got all the stuff uh, and uh, it, it, he also fell into great sin. And in the midst of that sin, it wasn't just sin. He, he found himself more empty than ever before. He, he, he satiated himself with the gold and the silver and the power and the military trinkets. He satisfied himself with all of these things, plus these women. More women, women were coming out of his ears, more than, like I said, more, more than two a day he could he even talk to. And despite all of that, Solomon found the emptiness of his soul that then the Holy Spirit used to drive him back to Jehovah God and humbled him greatly. So this man is a tremendous example. Now, <clears throat> If we go through this and we study this, this chapter focuses on, on one, of the main, one of his problems. And in this case, for Solomon, it was, it was the problem. It was the cardinal problem of his life. Uh, Solomon liked women. Now, most of us, you know, you know, as human beings, it's a good thing if we like, if we like uh, the female part of the species. It's a good thing if we like the male part of the species. It's a good thing. Uh, but God has limits on he defines how much we can like them and how much we can love them. In heaven, it will be somewhat different. We won't have the sexual problem in heaven. There will be no marriage and giving in marriage there. There will be intimacy, great intimacy. Not sexual intimacy, but the things for which sexual intimacy stands, namely intimacy. Our great need, our great desire in life is for intimacy. You talk to a, talk to a, sex, a person who's had a sexual addiction. They've had all kinds of sex, but no intimacy, no closeness. And even as they have been having intercourse with each other, there, there are, there's addiction on both sides of the sexual line. But even as they were having all of this, this uh, physical intimacy, there was a dearth, or I mean a scarcity of spiritual intimacy. And so they were hungry, and they were starving for Real intimacy. And uh, I've, I've had a number of people that I knew that had this problem, and that's their testimony. They'll, they'll say, I never had a day of true happiness, even though I was doing what the world dreams of and thinks will make them happy. And so uh, Solomon uh, had this, this problem after a fashion, and it welled up and, uh, and overwhelmed him. Now, he had these foreign women. He tells the different tribes that they were from, uh, the, including the daughter of Pharaoh. So they, every, everybody from the, everybody from women from the royal family of, of Egypt to the royal families of Am the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Moabites, all these people. And uh, God brings up here that he had expressly commanded the people not to intermarry with these people. Because he said, they will seduce you spiritually. You will go after their gods. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. And so with intermarriage, there came to be uh, infidelity. Now, this is the very opposite of what the world teaches. 
The world teaches today that the greater the mixture of people together, the greater will be our happiness. The greater diversity, the greater the diversity, the greater the inclusiveness, the, the less, the le the less uh, exclusion you have, the more inclusion you have, the happier you'll be. Huh? So Solomon tried it, and it didn't work. And God said up front that it wasn't going to work because uh, fidelity is different and that true happiness is different from what we think it will be. And so God says the way to find real happiness in your life is to find that one believing partner, that one believing partner to whom you can dedicate yourself and you basically you experiment with that person for the rest of your life. You experiment on what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be faithful, what it means to bear children, what it means to have a family. You experiment with it, and you, you discover more and more about yourself. Because we can't know these things intuitively. They're, they are not ours. We are not like God who knows everything intuitively, instantaneously at once. We are people that learn step by step. And so you won't even begin to know what it means to love somebody until you try to do it. And, and you dedicate yourself. The secret to true love is fidelity and, uh, and uh, remaining constant and learning from that other person. So that's God's law. That's God, what, God, what God says. And uh, But that was not Solomon's way. And in, in verse 2, we see where the third point I say here is that, that uh, it says that, that Solomon really did live, love these women. But it's in love in quotes, because it wasn't love as God defines it. God had already said love is defined as fidelity, faithfulness unto one person. And it's one believing person. You know, the, Adam and Eve are the, are the archetype of the love of the Bible, the love of the scriptures, where one believing man married one believing woman, and uh, they found uh, a joy together especially before the fall, but then even after the fall, as God ministered to them redemptively. But uh, we can we can confuse ourselves. We can say, oh, I, I love this person, and uh, I, don't, I, uh, I really love them, and when we, we don't really know what it is. I know um, Susan can test. She's not here today, but she can testify that I was convinced by my parents uh, not to tell somebody that I love them before I could really show it to them. And prove it to them. So uh, through high school, <laughs> I had a lot of friends that were that always in love, and they were telling their gir the girls that they were dating, "I love you," you know. And then a week later, they'd be going with someone else, "I love you." <laughs> so love was not really working uh, as powerfully as the Bible says. But uh, through, um, uh, I just uh, and I, I didn't tell any woman that I loved her, even women that I cared about in high school, dated. I didn't tell anybody I loved them until I told Susan. And it was, it's a real joy to have the insight of the scriptures to help you along in, the, in these regards. But Solomon was not, was not uh, of this mind. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart uh, when he was old. This, this happened to him. And this is a lesson to us, especially uh, those of us that are older. You know, you sometimes think that that uh, the, the biggest battles that you fight are the battles of youth. Well, I can testify to you as an older person, I'm sure Stephen can, I'm sure our wives can, that there are other, other battles, other struggles that you encounter 
in your elder age that are real battles, that are real struggles. And so uh, Solomon found this. He did fairly well when he was younger. God animated his heart and his spirit. He did fairly well. But when he became older, he had this problem of heart. And uh, many men, many, many marriages fall apart when the people get a little bit older. And uh, 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 men uh, think that if they get some young woman that that, that will make them young. <laughs> it doesn't do that. But that's the kind of thing that happened to, uh, to Solomon. And so uh, he was in love, but only after a fashion, not, after, and not in the sense of reality. And so uh, in verse 4, 5, and 6, 7, and 8, it tells the story of how Solomon apostatized. He actually came to the point where he began to build these temples to these foreign gods. And it's just it's unbelievable that a man with Solomon's wisdom could do this kind of thing and not see the error of his ways. And this was as an older man, a man of experience. But God teaches us about our vanity and our foolishness through such procedures as these. He shows us that the moment we turn our eyes from the scriptures and from the truth of God and the Bible, we are in very dangerous territory, no matter what we've done heretofore in our lives. It's only the redemptive grace of God that is able to keep us on the path. So it's one thing to fight the good fight when you're younger. It's, good, it's another thing to fight the good fight of faith when you're middle-aged. And it's another thing to fight the good fight of faith when you're older. But blessed is the man that walketh in the ways of the Lord all of his days and is able to rejoice in the goodness of God when he gives his life up to the Lord uh, in, in the end. <clears throat> so Solomon apostatized, but then Solomon was confronted. We see in verse 9 where it says, the Lord became angry with Solomon. Now, God does not reveal this to all of us. To Solomon, he did. God does not send you special messages all the time. I'm really ticked at you. You're really disobedient. But he gives us these examples in Solomon so that we should know when we deviate from his ways, he's angry with us. Believe me. He's angry. And so he was with Solomon, and so he revealed it to Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel. See, the thing the Lord really loves is our love. When people think about themselves as sinners or non-sinners or righteous, they usually don't think in terms of love. They usually think of the things like murder or adultery. But what God really wants from us is our affection, the affection of our hearts. He wants us to love him. Now, this is not something that he's asking us. This is not um, an abnormally high hurdle. We, we, if we were really pure, we would love him because should we not love the thing that it was, is most lovable in this world? Should we not love the, the person or the being who was the strongest, the, the, most, the most virtuous, the most lovely, the most loving? You see, when you, when you realize who God really is, and that's the mistake that human, the human society makes. They have all these superstitious views of God, and they make up their own views of what God is and when he's right and when he's wrong. They don't really read the Bible to see what he really is. But if we see what he really is, then we ought to love him with all of our heart and all of our souls and all of our minds. That's the great commandment. But what is, so what is our greatest failure? Our greatest failure is to fall short of that love. 
And that's what the Lord, that's what the Bible means when it says all men fall short of the glory of God. They fall, they fall short of glorifying the Lord, loving him as he is. And so they fall into great sin. So Solomon was confronted by this and God pronounced a judgment upon him. He said that he would rip the kingdom out of his hands, and uh, but he wouldn't take it all away. He wouldn't tear away the whole kingdom. He would give one tribe to uh, his son, um, uh, uh, Rehoboam, and the, 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 the sons of Solomon. And one, one tribe he would give to him. And then, so what happens is that in the scriptures after this, the, he, he comes to, to Jeroboam, this guy with a lot of ambition, and he tells him he tells him to take cloth and tear it in ten pieces or twelve pieces, and he's going he's going to take ten of those pieces away from Solomon's son Rehoboam, and give it and give it to Jeroboam. Uh, so and uh, he says to, he says to, well there's another sermon with Jeroboam I won't give you now, but <clears throat> he he pronounces the judgment that he's going to make upon this family. Uh, now, but he says he's not going to do it in Solomon's life for the sake of David. Because, you see, Solomon's life is supposed to be this paradigm or this picture of God's blessing. Of how God can bless the spiritual of this world in earthly, in earthly terms as well as with spiritual terms. And we've already talked about how there are two tracks here in the Bible. The six-day track and the seven-day track. And how they often go apart. Oftentimes God blesses the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Philistines more than Israel in, in some earthly way. But the, he's always blessing Israel spiritually. And, and so the, it was during the Solomonic reign when both the worldly, both the six-day track and the seven-day track come together very close together. And God says that because this is his purpose, he's not going to do it. He's not going to rip the kingdom out of Solomon's hands while he is still alive. He's going to do it from his from his children. And we know from the rest of the Bible that that is exactly what he does. Now, having, having finished this then, I want you to think about these two applications. One, the application of how, what this says about us as human beings, and then what this says about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because Solomon was the son of David, but there was a better yet. There was a better son of David coming yet, and that was Jesus Christ. So, what does this pass? What do the what does this passage tell us about both the the uh, us and about Jesus? Because we can't really help but think of those things as we come, as we see the the breadth of this passage. What what does it teach us about ourselves? It teaches us. Amazingly, how weak we are as creatures. That we hardly know ourselves. You know, we think if we get blessings, we'll be good people. <laughs> no, that's not the way it is. Oftentimes, the best people come from deprivation and tragedy and affliction. Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. We know down through history that, uh, that many people that make the most product from the Lord, are the most prosperous for Christ, are those people who have suffered the most. So 
we shouldn't pray for our children. Oh, God, don't afflict my children in any way. Just give them a straight way of peace. You can't pray that if you want a way of prosperity for them. We need to pray, God, bless my children with righteousness. Give them a hard life, if you will. The one thing we, we cry out for, God, the one thing we must have is thy love. We must obtain thy love that we would be prosperous in thee, not prosperous in the ways of the world. So the life of Solomon teaches us a lot of negative things about our human role, our human species. What does it teach us about the Son of God? Well, it teaches us the very opposite. Jesus fulfilled the role of the Son of David in a parallel way to Solomon because Jesus was blessed over and over and over again, at least inwardly. He had a lot of affliction, but Jesus never wandered. Jesus had all of the bounty of Solomon with none of the weakness. When you think of all of the blessings of Christ, his wisdom, his love for his people. When you think of these things, uh, Jesus never deviated. Jesus was, Jesus was able to accept the will of his father. Jesus was a real man. Did you ever think about it? Jesus was a real man, and yet he never married. Uh, he never he never knew what uh, uh, sexual uh, intercourse was. Yet he was very happy. <laughs> yet he was very fulfilled. And he didn't put a, a zeal or an envy for that kind of thing over his calling to be the savior of his people, the savior of the world. So Jesus receives all of the blessings that Solomon receives and yet remains faithful. He remains firm unto the end. He has only the, the goal of saving his people from their sin. He will not deviate from that. He would not place his own the, the creational joys. He was a true man. He was truly created as a man, albeit miraculously through the Holy Spirit. But he would not put that sort of thing ahead of his calling to save his people from their sin. And when we think of that, it just bewilders us, does it not? I mean, if you're a man, if you're a man, I, I know men, I don't know women quite as well, but I know men, and I just, I cannot, I cannot grasp the faithfulness and the fidelity of my Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to walk in the way that he walked. But because of that, when he was crucified at the end of his life and the sins of the world were piled upon him or the sins of the elect were piled upon him, what happened? His righteousness, his goodness raised him up from the dead. They could not keep this good man down. His righteousness was more powerful than all the sin of his people. And the, and, and the Father raised him up because of this faithfulness uh, that he had. <clears throat> And when he did that, he was able to save us from our sin. And that there's real power in that. This past, this past vacation, one of the things that I did was I made a number of calls to people that I've known for a long time. I wanted to catch up with them. Uh, one, of the, one of the people that I called was a young man named Tony Rogers, who was a, a Christ College student uh, back in Lynchburg, Virginia, when I was, uh, when I was there as a, a 
teacher and uh, pastor. And uh, I, I found out something from Tony that I'd never known before. He was evangelized, or the, the, the evangelistic agent for Tony was a Satanist. I, I, I mean to be shocking, because it's, it's a shocking idea. Uh, I didn't know that Tony was in jail for, two, I think, two and a half years, something like that. And, well, actually, in prison. He'd, he'd, he'd done enough to make it all the way to prison, not, not just the jail. He said he was put in with this inmate who was a Satanist. Now, Tony says, I didn't know anything about the Lord. I was out doing my own thing, and I got arrested for doing it. And uh, so I was put in jail, and I was put in jail with the Satanist. And he said the Satanist talked all the time. <laughs> the Satanist was telling him all the time. He was telling him about his disputes that he was having with Christian inmates in the, in the prison. And one day he said to Tony, he says, I'm going to prove that I'm right to you. He said, I'm going to prove it from the scriptures that I'm right. Tony doesn't know what the scriptures are. But this, this, this inmate obtained through his wisdom in the jail or the prison, he, he got a copy of the Bible into the jail cell. And he's quoting verses and showing Tony how these, these Christians are wrong. Tony says, I'm <laughs> he says, I was listening to this stuff. And he says, I, I just, he said, I couldn't, I couldn't, it was just really stuff that I'd never heard before in my life. So he said the Satanist attention span wasn't all that long in terms of the Bible. So he said the Bible got left in the cell. And Tony started reading the Bible. And as he read the Bible, he found out about this wonderful person named Jesus Christ. And there in the darkness of the prison, he came to faith in Christ. Such is the power of the son of David, who did not deviate like Solomon, but maintained his course until the end. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst be with us, helping us to love and to esteem thee, O Lord, and thy Son, even Jesus Christ. Bless us with power from on high. We need it. We are so weak. We're like Solomon. We think things that are not, and we think things that are not are. We pray, O Lord, that thou wouldst bless us with thy wisdom and thy power from on high, even the power of thy Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, that we might live and move and have all our being in thee. In his name we pray, amen.